Hello, and welcome in to the third episode of Not Just Another Sports Podcast. Joining me today, as always, is Christian. Christian, how are you today? Doing good. It's Father's Day when we're recording this, so happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there. I know you. Uh, this is your first Father's Day, so how does it feel, man? I'll tell you what. It's, uh, it's kind of weird, honestly. Whenever you have a young one, Mother's Day, Father's Day... Those holidays, they're, they don't really sink in quite yet because, you know, you can't really talk to the kid. They can't give you anything, but it, it's definitely still special. It was, it was nice to have a little elevated meaning to the day for the first time rather than it just being about my dad. Um, so it was definitely nice. It was unusual to have people text me or wish me Happy Father's Day. So it was great. We had a nice day, and it's been a good weekend. And, you know, I, I want to ask you this because – a lot of people are super dug in on this topic, and I want to know where you stand. It's been brutally hot here in KC this week. Which would you rather deal with? A brutally hot week, or we can just say brutally hot weather, or brutally cold weather? Which do you prefer? Are you a hot person or a cold person? So 100% a cold person. I, I like to enjoy outdoor activities like hunting and, and fishing. Um, and the best time, I, I always have the best time. Uh, late fall, uh, early, you know, February, early spring, that, that time. And it's always super, super cold, especially here in the middle of Missouri. Um, but man, you can always put more layers on. That's what I always see, say. See, you say that. You say that you can always put more layers on. I'm here to tell you that's bullshit. Dude, I have been to Chiefs games where I am long underwear, insulated boots, hunting gear, all suited up. You go out there, and once you get cold, there is no warming up, not on the way home, not when you get home until you take a shower. The put on more layer thing is a joke. I do not believe in that. You want to know how I know that the summer is better than the cold, brutally cold weather? Here's why. In the summer, when it's 110 degrees or whatever, and you're driving somewhere, people don't say, hey, make sure you text me when you get there to make sure you get there all right. <laughs> people destroy their cars driving in the winter. And look, I do – and here's the other thing. This is actually probably – the worst part about winter and here's what it is we you know we typically set our house for about 70 degrees almost year-round gets a little bit hotter in the summer you know about 72 70 in the winter the house stays the same temperature all year round but whenever it's winter you dress like an Eskimo but I don't know about you but whenever I get inside that like hoodie and jeans or long underwear or whatever you're going to wear to go outside, you instantly shed it whenever you get inside. At my old job, they used to keep the building pretty hot and I would just be burning up the entire winter because I'm dressed for outside, but inside is comfortable. But you know what? I never have that problem in the winter or in the summer. I can just wear what I'm wearing and be comfortable outside or inside. I, if anything... The thing that is the best about summer is hopefully most people are taking more showers. Like I call it two shower season. Like that's what summer is. Like I take a morning shower, almost always take an evening shower because I've gotten hot and sweaty. See, I don't know. I, I just prefer the, the winter. Maybe we are, where we differ is the temperature of your house. You say you like it 70? You keep it around 70? 70 in the winter, about 72 during the summer just to try to alleviate the air conditioner running constantly. See, I'm a high 60s man. I, I like it 67, 68 degrees. And I like to sit, if I'm sitting at home, I want to have to put a blanket on. Like no. I, I like to relax, comfortable. I mean, keep my socks on the whole night. And I'm all good for the cozy vibes. You know, like I, I can dig the like sitting underneath a blanket or wearing a hoodie or whatever. But my thing is just like, Look outside, you know, during the summer, you drive through your neighborhood, even on a hot day, there's people walking the dog, jogging, kids out in the sprinkler, everyone's outside enjoying their lives. You drive through your neighborhood at the winter, first off, you can't see anything because it's freaking dark at 4 p.m. 
And then everyone's cooped up in their house. The best thing you get to see during the winter is their Christmas tree through the window. I don't know. I just, I don't, I think we can all agree that we like the middle ground, right? Like, you know, if we could have every day be 65 or something like that, it'd probably be perfect. But I would oh, yeah, much absolutely. rather prefer a brutally hot week than a brutally cold week. See, and there are still activities you can do in the cold. Don't forget, I mean, sledding is completely underrated. We have a big hill in my home. So your underwear gets wet, and then, <laughs> and then you're just miserable. But, yeah, I, I mean. You're just a hater, dude. Dude, no, no, here's the thing. Here's, here's the thing. Everything is, like, the grass is truly always greener, dude. Like, right now, when we're sitting outside burning up, you think about, like, a cup of cocoa and Bing Crosby on the radio. You're like, oh, man, I would just love to see Love to see some white snow powder out on the front of the house. But then, like, when it's winter and it's been snowing for, like, three weeks and there's that giant pile of black snow sitting in the Walmart parking lot for weeks after it snowed, that's that's the reality of winter. But I think we've given probably enough topic or enough discussion to this topic. Okay, we'll move on. Um, Did you get a chance to watch the last game of the Nets Bucks series last night. Yes, I was watching it live. And let me tell you, it's one of the best games that I've seen in a long time. It was it was truly an awesome game. I turned it on at halftime. My wife fell asleep. I was watching it in the bed and like I kept telling myself I'm going to go to sleep and I I could not turn it off. It was it was just a great game. It had so many good storylines. It had so many lead changes. And I think I think probably the best thing about the game was too was just watching watching two players in Giannis and KD both go back and forth and then also watch them in how much they depended on their supporting cast and how much one player's supporting cast helped them. And one didn't. The player of the game for the Bucks is Drew Holiday. He was ice cold almost the whole game. And then about halfway through the fourth quarter, he, and they even said it on the broadcast, they're saying daring Holiday to shoot. And he did. And he just all of a sudden caught fire. And I think he hit like three or four threes and a couple of big twos in that end of the fourth quarter and into overtime. And that was the difference in the game. Yeah, I mean, J. Rue Holiday was an incredible addition midway. I, I believe it was midway through the season this year. Um, and but you you said it was kind of a back and forth. Really, I I think it was just the two stars because J. Rue Holiday. I like to check the box score about halfway through each game, see how everybody's doing, see if what I'm watching and and how I feel like the game is going is actually statistically how the game is going. And J. Rue Holiday was like one for 10. He, he had one three and, and had no free throws. I mean, like, it was, it was absolutely awful. And, and James Harden was about the same way. He really didn't play well. And it felt like it was KD versus Giannis. Like, this, this battle of the six foot 10 sort of uh, athletic, you know, ball handlers. And I think I, we can tell easily who the better player was KD with that step back turnaround, basically three point shot to ice the game, to tie the game at, at the buzzer. I mean, I I don't know. This, this was a legacy game for, for Kevin Durant for sure. Well, I'm I'm glad you brought up Kevin Durant because, and by the way, you were correct about true holiday. Um, He was traded um, on the 24th of November of 2020. So, Um, but yeah, going back to Kevin Durant, I mean, to me now this, this is going to sound pretty, pretty aggressive, but at this point right now, I feel like you could at least start discussing Kevin Durant in that top five greatest of all time type of discussion when it comes to basketball. And here's why Durant in this series, particularly had little to no help. I mean, Harden was a shell of himself. You knew he was whenever he, you know, Harden usually is just money, 
on those step back threes. And he did not, I'm not sure he sunk one of those the whole game. It felt like the last, that final sequence, that inbound sequence, everyone in the building knew the ball was going to Kevin Durant and they still couldn't stop him. Now you can get on to him and say, it should have been, you know, if, if it would have been a three, it would have been even better. And obviously it would have been, but he played almost every single minute of that game. He did the same thing in game five, I believe, as well, where he played every single minute, had, you know, a, a box score stat line that was unlike any player has ever had in a game. And part of the reason why I feel like you can start putting Durant in that conversation is because while I do think that LeBron James is probably, you know, if not the best player of all time, right next to obviously Jordan and Kobe and those other players, they are different players. Kevin Durant is a seven-foot one shooter he can shoot from the three he he has just taken the game to another level he requires teams to play him and his style of play so much differently and he is continuing to do this after a severe injury now I think and you can let me know what you think about this I think that Durant really needed to win that series and probably get this ring because the one argument that you can make about KD is that we have never seen him carry a team deep into the playoffs without severe help. I mean, with the Thunder, obviously he had Harden and Westbrook. And then leaving the Thunder to join the 73-win Golden State Warriors, and that team lost to LeBron, the OKC team. They lost to him in the Western Conference Finals. And then joining Golden State, obviously, I mean, that was already a, a big three. That was just a bonkers team. And now, granted, they are not healthy, but the Nets are a super team as well. And honestly, I think we need to stop worrying about that so much when it comes to the analysis of players, because even saying that is still a compliment to Kevin Durant, because he has changed his style of play so much it was super underrated. People think it's just Madden or, you know, video games where you just put four good players on a team and everything works. They had to really work to make that work in Golden State with those that many shooters, that many players who all had different roles. So, I mean, I'm I'm not necessarily right. That, I'm not ready to say he's number four or number three, but I feel like at this time, Kevin Durant has as much opportunity to put himself into that conversation as LeBron James has to leave that conversation, if that makes sense. You know, LeBron clearly on the downslope. Durant, as long as that other Achilles stays healthy, I can certainly see him creeping in, into that conversation. He definitely needs some more big performances in the playoffs and probably another ring or two, but I could certainly see it. So there's no question, right? Kevin Durant, is an extremely efficient, effective scorer, but I don't, I don't think you could put him in the top five. And, and that's not just because, you know, he, he doesn't bring the ball up or he's only a scorer. I don't even think he's the best scorer of all time. I mean, even there are at least three or four all time great scorers that I think do it better than him. Um, <clears throat> MJ, obviously. Um, I mean, he had, consistently high playoff scoring games and say what you want. Pippen was a great player, an all-time great player. I don't think he cracks the top 50. I think Steph Curry, I think Clay Thompson may crack the top 50 of all time. Uh, M or Kobe, I'm sorry, uh, he had 81 points, and that was after Shaq left. I mean, an all-time great scoring performance as the undisputed alpha of his team. Uh, even Kareem, I mean, he had his highest scoring games when he played for the Bucs. Nobody remembers Kareem on the Bucs, or at least it's not brought up as much as I think it should be. But he's always been on really good teams. Kev Kevin Durant has always been on really good teams where he's just been asked to score. Now, he showed you the other night in game six that he can be, for one game, the do-it-all player. He can be LeBron James for one game, okay? But we saw last night, he, he was great, but LeBron was doing what KD did in that game, 
for series, for seasons, for when he was in Cleveland, that's, that's who he was every game. Now, Kevin Durant, he, I mean, the, the tape really doesn't lie. He can score the basketball in, in maybe more ways than anybody else. But scoring is much easier when you have elite-level talent around you. Well, one thing that I wanted to kind of shoot back at you, you said he's always on teams that win. In football, we just call that being a winner. You know, Tom Brady's had that his whole life with good teams. And if you're the quarterback, you get all the success. At what point do we start, we stop saying Kevin Durant just has good talent around him? And at what point do we start saying Kevin Durant is a winner and brings winning with him? Now, I'll agree that he has always had good teams around him. That's, that's not a joke. That's real. But also, what was the last team that won the NBA Finals that you can think of that wasn't three, four superstars deep? I mean, I think that that's just how it goes now. I mean, are there teams that are less star-heavy? Sure. The Lakers last year kind of were that way. AD and LeBron, there's not really a third person in there, though they got some really good play from Rondo and other players. But I, I think that that's just how we have to start looking at it. I, to say, and you, know, you mentioned Pippen, and obviously there was a lot of really good players on those bold teams too. It's not groundbreaking to say that a good team is the team that wins championships. My thing with Kevin Durant is this, and then we can move on um, if you don't have a rebuttal. It's just Durant is requiring teams. I mean, Durant's just a different breed. What he does for basketball and what he's done for basketball as far as being, because, I mean, he was really one of those first big guys that can really shoot the ball. And he requires defenses to cover every single inch of the court. And you saw it with Giannis in that game. They were not afraid of him beyond the arc. And Kevin Durant requires that. And obviously, I, I do agree with your conclusion that, you know, he's probably not in that top five discussion. I think he's got a lot to prove to get up in there. But what I do like about Durant and what I think makes him in that breath of greatest players and best players in the NBA right now is that he brings something to the court that very, very few players can. And it's that ability to shoot from anywhere. I think the one thing that he does lack that you could say maybe, uh, you know, LeBron, maybe Kobe is that physicality. You know, he's not someone that is up in the paint as much. Um, he is of you know, slider build, so he's not necessarily someone who gets in there. But, I mean, he had a huge block in the end of that game as well. Um, I can't remember the player that he blocked for the Bucks, but I, I could certainly see it. You know, I, it would not surprise me at all if three or four years from now we're sitting around talking about, you know, LeBron, KD, Kobe, MJ, all those players in the same breath. Well, I'll, I'll hit on one thing from, from what you said, and then we can move on to uh, some MLB stuff. But uh, – I think we the differentiation between being a winning player and bringing winning to to organizations and being a byproduct of success or just flourishing in success uh, successful organizations is you being a part of it. He he was part. Maybe that's not a good way of phrasing it, but there's a difference between bringing success to an unsuccessful organization. Right. And, and LeBron did that with the Cavs, right? He was the first overall pick. He led them to a finals. Then he left for Miami and they were a crapshoot, like just awful. One of the worst teams They were picking in the top of the draft every year. And then he came back. Oh, and now they're a contender. He goes to the Lakers. Oh, now they're a contender. Oh, okay. I, I see what you're saying. And I think, I think your point is valid that there is a level of greatness that overcomes adversity, right? You're, you're an idiot to say that you think that you could take Patrick Mahomes and put him on any team in the NFL and he would be the player that he is today. There are situations that benefit players. Now, I will say that, you know, OKC, which was the Sonics at one point, 
isn't exactly a franchise that was great. Now, did they win a ring? No, but that that franchise was elevated more than ever had been and has been since. And then, you know, Golden State had its time, but I, I do understand what you're saying. And, you know, LeBron definitely overcame some real incompetence in Cleveland. Um, you know, that team's been nothing before or after him. So um, I, I do get where you're coming from that. And, you know, Brooklyn's a great place for him to do that. That's not been a great franchise for a really long time. And if he brings a ring back to Brooklyn, whether it be with Kyrie or Harden or whoever, um, I think that, that, you know, that's how he can move into that next phase. Oh, absolutely. I think that will maybe answer some of the unanswered questions there on whether he brings greatness or, you know, he's a good uh, piece to add to greatness, if that makes any sense. For sure. All right. I've got some news for you. Some people haven't heard this news yet. Um, and, and some people have heard it, but just aren't ready to accept it yet. But the Royals are not a good baseball team. Groundbreaking. It's true. I have said it for a really long time. Um, the facade that was the beginning of the season was a lot of really close wins against really bad teams or teams of equal value as to them. Now, the latter part of their schedule is packed with teams that are leading the division or in the playoff hunt. And like baseball is a long, drawn-out season, their depth is getting tested. You know, Ben Attendee is hurt. Mondesi is literally left today's game injured and is forever a question mark. Don't even get me started on that. Danny Duffy. There are many players who are hurt. And the Royals are exactly what they've been. They've been a team that have lost 11 in a row and then lost 11 out of 12. They, while they, I do think that they have improved from last year and the years prior where they've lost 100 games, they are still a bad baseball team. So I think, I mean, Christian, can you agree with me that the Royals are dead for this season? Yes. And in a previous episode of this, you, you said something like a lot of people feel like this is the, the 2016 or 2015 uh, World Series team where they, they scratch and claw and fight for, for every win. And that is not the case at all. This is, this is not even close to the same team. I think you were spot on with your take there. And this is something you've been banging your drum about for a while. Well, dude, I this is the softest baseball team I think I've ever seen. Like, they seem to have virtually no fight in them. And whenever they get in a slump offensively, there is no getting out of it. And part of it is, is because they continue to put, put Jorge Soler and Hunter Dozier out there every single day, who are some of the worst qualified hitters in baseball, according to baseball reference. But in addition to that, the thing that's even more frustrating to me is that they keep making head-scratching moves as far as pitching goes, where they're throwing Jackson Cower out there, um, the whole Daniel Lynch debacle. Then they send um, they send Edward Olivares, who's been one of the more promising outfielders, back down frequently. I'm just I'm just really not sure what they're going for. And truthfully, the worst thing that can happen to the Royals right now is them get a little bit hot and get around 500 around the trading deadline because this team is not close and they need to move on from some pieces. Um, and Christian, you can tell me how you feel about this. So there's some obvious people that need to move. Um, Greg Holland would be a good person to move. He's a reliever. Those are always valuable commodities at the deadline. Um, Hunter Alberto. Gerard Dyson, those are guys that could surprisingly get some, just a really low-level live arm or something like that. Dyson for his de uh, speed and defense. And then Alberto can play a couple of different positions. And, you know, for especially a National League team, that can be a value. Um, no one is trading for Jorge Soler. So let's just, that ship has sailed. Um, but these are the two that I would, I want to pick your brain about. Andrew Benatendi and um, Whit Merrifield. Whit Merrifield is having a down season for him, still a good season for most players. Andrew Benatendi was just traded for. What do you think about trading those guys if they could bring back a bigger prospect package? 
So really kind of what you're asking me is, do you think we should, we should be building up assets to make a better run and change up the core of the team to, uh, to make it further, maybe not next year or the year after, but a few years down the road, I'm a hundred percent in agreement with that. Um, one of the worst things that you can do as a sports franchise is be a middling team where you maybe make a run in the middle of the season or, or maybe you get hot at the end or start off hot. But, but there's a really, I mean, it, it's an anomaly when that happens. That's, that's not really what your team is. And, and, you know, trading some guys like Dyson and, and Alberto and uh, Merrifield getting those guys off the roster and, and bringing in some new blood, I think might be the best thing for this franchise. Well, yeah. And I, I mean, you're spot on with that. And you've got two different situations there with Whit Merrifield. He's 32 years old. You can go ahead and assume he's already really regressed as a defender at second this year. And I know that they're going to start putting him in the outfield more if, well, if Montessi was ever healthy, but with wit, you you run the risk of the 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 asset declining in value, right? And I, I know describing players as assets sounds bad, but he is declining in value. There is a time to move on from wit, and it's sooner than later, in my opinion. He could bring a haul at the deadline or at winter um, over the winter meetings and all that in the offseason, but he, to me, is the number one player that they need to move because he has, what, two or three good years left, maybe, and this team is not ready to contend in the next two or three years, in my opinion. Ben Attendee is a little bit, I think that one might be a little bit strong since they just traded for him. Now, what they gave up has not turned into anything. Khalil Lee came up with the Mets and struck out approximately a million times, and then, um, the player that they sent to, I can't remember if they sent him to the Mets, or no, the player that they sent to the Red Sox has not really panned out at all either. So the only reason that you move on from Andrew Benatendi is if you feel like you cannot get a trade done with him. Um, or not a trade, sorry, a contract. If they feel like they are unable to trade him um, or assign him, then they need to move on from him. And that would be the only situation now, I will say I am pretty impressed with how well the Royals have tra- uh, fixed Benatendi's swing from where he came from the Red Sox, where he was an absolute mess, just trying to hit for power. They have kind of molded him back into the player that he was. But Merrifield definitely, um, Duffy, if he would have been he- healthy. Um, but, I mean, if seriously, if you trade Khalil Lee, Franchi Cordero, and Andrew Benatendi, get a bunch of top-level prospects, that would make sense in the essence of trading Benatendi. But that's only if you feel like you can't get them signed. Um, but, yeah, the Royals, they are sad, and it's not very much fun to talk, talk about. But there's just some – there's a lot of things that need to happen there. And, I mean, I don't know. You tell me, do you think Dayton Moore could be on the hot seat? Uh, you know, that, that's kind of tough to say. I – I believe that there probably is some precedent. There's a, um, you know, he could be if, uh, if management thinks that, you know, he's not doing a good job, but I feel like he's got maybe, maybe one or two more years to, to kind of prove, you know, prove his worth to the team, if you will. Well, to me, he's pushed the, the franchise or not the franchise, the organization in general has pushed all their chips to the center with this 2018 draft class. If Brady Singer and Chris Bubich and Daniel Lynch and Jackson Kowar, if all of them are middling relievers or back end of the rotation guys and some of them don't ever make it to the big leagues, I feel like that will be the nail in the coffin because that is, that is the, the thing that this organization has built everything upon right now is that pitching group. And if they, if they flounder out, I, I could definitely see that being the end for Dayton Moore, which I think – a year or two is when we're going to kind of start to start to know those things. No matter how much of a superstar Bobby Wood is, he could be literally Mike Trout, and it would not matter. I mean, look at how look at what Mike Trout's done with the Angels. Virtually nothing because that team cannot figure out pitching. But all right, let's move on to another Kansas City topic. Um, 
This one is one that I like to think about. Who are three Chiefs players that need to have a big season for the Chiefs to do well? Now, it's real easy to just go Patrick Mahomes, Tyreek Hill, Travis Kelsey, forever and ever, amen. And that's really true, but we're looking for three players that are maybe a little bit more under the radar that need to have a good season to make a big difference for the Chiefs to be good in 2021. Christian, do you have your three ready to go? Yeah, yeah. Um, let's do it. Uh, let's do it in ascending order. So three, two, one. Finish with your most most crucial. One being my most crucial. Yeah, yeah. Okay. The person you think that is the most crucial. So, I'll go ahead and start with Clyde, uh, and then Juan Thornhill and Yang being my last one. What about you? So for me, my third is going to be Clyde. Uh, my second one is going to be. Willie Gay, and my first one is going to be um, McCole Hardman. Oh, wow. Okay. It, it surprises me you have uh, Mecole that high. Well, so I'll get into my reasoning, and then you can get into yours. Clyde Edwards-Alaire being third, he was drafted to be a difference maker for this offense. Um. People get love to write mean tweets to me because I don't like Clyde Edwards-Alaire because I don't just wave pom-poms every time the Chiefs do something. So far, obviously, it is a very short sample and a pandemic-shortened season, but Clyde Edwards-Alaire has not returned the value that he was drafted at. Damian Williams and Daryl Williams were just as equally as valuable as Clyde. Um, he had... I wrote about this in the article that I wrote this week. 39% of Clyde Edwards-Alaire production as a rusher in 2020 came from two games against the two, two of the worst rush defenses in the league, the Texans and the Bills. If you remove that, if you remove those two games from a stat line, he loses 40% almost of his rushing yards for the season. Clyde needs to be the difference maker. He needs to start being that Christian. And I mean, obviously, he doesn't need to be the best running back in the league. But he needs to, to me, the thing that is missing the most from his game is him being a home run threat, him being the guy that might break at 60 to the house, because that's what he has lacked. You'll get those 20-yard chunks sometimes, but he's not a pass-catching threat or hasn't been in the past yet. Now, I know they say that he can, but this offense, after losing Sammy Watkins, after Travis Kelsey and Tyreek Hill getting another year old, after putting so much invested into the offensive line, they need some secondary weapons to really step up to continue to be that dominant offensive force that they have been, especially with the defense being, and you know, this kind of goes into the McCole Hardman thing as well. But if the defense is going to be average, which they've not really made any moves to make me think that it's going to be more than average, um, the offense has to be dominant. Willie Gay is the second one. Um, Willie Gay brings something to the defense that they have not had with Damian Wilson or um, Ben Neiman, obviously. Willie Gay is a freak athletically and can allow them to do a bunch of different things with blitzes because if he can hold up in pass coverage and be that time backer, they can really start to open up a lot of different packages. But they've had to leverage Matthew and Sorensen and other players in that coverage role which really kind of ties them up. If it is going to be a disaster, if your starting linebackers in the dime are Anthony Hitchens and Ben Neiman almost all the time. And right now in training camp, that's more or less what they've had. Willie Gay's got to step up. They need him to step up as well because they, in Brett Veach's time, 2018, they drafted Dorian O'Daniel, <laughs> nothing. Just a joke of a draft pick, more or less just a special team. Then they've drafted Willie Gay. And then they drafted the linebacker from Mizzou, whose name is escaping me right now. Help me out, Christian. Nick Bolton. Nick, Nick Bolton. Bolton, yeah. So they've drafted linebacker three times. And if Willie Gay falls through, they're going to go back to the drawing board again. And you're almost banking on your linebackers in 2021 or 2022 being Nick Bolton and Willie Gay. So Willie Gay has to take a step up. That's one of the few paths to this defense improving after losing Bashad Breland. And 
he brings a completely different element to that defense if he is healthy and, and up with the playbook. Lastly, it's McCole Hardman. This is me being kind of my biased self, but I personally believe that one of the biggest differences between good teams and great teams, the teams that win Super Bowls, is not necessarily the quarterback. Well, it, obviously it is the quarterback. That's the most important thing. But when it comes down to great quarterback against great quarterback and good teams against other good teams and strong defenses and strong coaches, it's really coming down to your third and your fourth and your fifth options. The Buccaneers won the Super Bowl last year because they had so many options that the Chiefs couldn't handle them all. That's why Antonio Brown had a huge Super Bowl and Gronkowski did as well because they were the third and the fourth options. Teams can take away two or three options. We saw them do it with Hill and Kelsey. And you know what? They dared Clyde Edwards-Dillard to run the ball in that game. People love to talk about how well he rushed in the Super Bowl. They did not care. They wanted Clyde to run the ball. Sure, take a draw for 18 yards because we can stop you at the red zone or settle you for, or have you settle for field goals. They were worried about the home run. Nicole Hardman has a extremely unique skill set. And he has, even though he is still, you know, in, going into his third year, has the most upside of almost any other player on that offense. He has to take the next step because here's the thing that's looming. Tyree Kill is drastically underpaid at this point. He's got one year left on his deal. There is a real situation in the next two years that McCole Hardman and Tyree Kill are not on this team. Now, obviously, that's really far down the road. But Tyree Kill did not want to rework his deal in 2020 or 2021. You know, they talked about that. So McCole's got to take the next step because he's Tyree Kill insurance if Tyree Kill goes down or leaves in the future. And he's the most likely candidate of the Chiefs pass catchers to be a true weapon. He has the pedigree. Look, I know you might have went to K-State, but Byron Pringle is not going to replace Sammy Watkins. And yes, I know Cornell Powell wears the same number as Sammy Watkins, but we know nothing about Cornell Powell. McCole Hardman has got to be a legitimate threat to score and put the Chiefs offense over the top for them to be successful. So uh, we'll go back to the beginning, CEH, which I completely agree with you. I, as far as I'm concerned, this is a make or break year for him. The O-line has been revamped. Sammy Watkins is gone, like you said. Um, and he's had a whole nother year in the system. Say what you want about the pandemic. There are still players that broke out and broke into the NFL and had really good years this year. Uh, and one of the reasons that, that Clyde didn't is because of the offensive line, which is not an excuse anymore. That's, that's not a reason that you can't get four and a half or five yards per carry. Um, and, you know, the Mahomes contract, Kelsey's contract, Hill's contract, they're all going to be taking up more, more cap space. Um, and we need to find a different wrinkle in this offense. Cornell Powell is not going to come in and give you Sammy Watkins production. Okay, he he is a fifth round pick. He uh, he is a rookie in an Andy Reid offense, so he's he's not going to be getting a significant amount of touches. And we, we're running out of options. We we try to give Julio Brown money or Julio, not Julio Brown. What am I saying? Uh, Juju Smith Schuster money to come in and play. Obviously, that didn't work out, but. but you know, this is his year. 100% this is his year. And, and secondly, I have Juan Thornhill, um, who had a really, really good rookie season, um, but kind of regressed in 2020. Um, and that could be because of injury or the sophomore slump most players go through. But, you know, that's kind of anyone's guess. Um, we really need him to step up and be at least 80% of what Tyron Matthew is. I mean, Matthew isn't going to be here forever. We need we and we don't need another Eric Berry, Justin Houston type of contract where we pay an older player who gets injured and, and can't play a bunch of money. I think and, I think that's I think that's a really good. I'll, I'll let you get back to it, but I think that's a really good take because <clears throat> Juan Thornhill 
if he's healthy, he gives the Chiefs safety something that they don't have, that true deep center fielder. And Matthew played a completely different role in 2020 than he did in 2019, and he struggled more in 2020. A healthy one, Thornhill, allows the defense to, again, have much more flexibility. Well, and like I said, eventually Matthew's not going to be here. We, we got to have some back-end safety help, and Tyron Matthew is the perfect person to learn from. He knows the game almost better than anybody. He's a top five safety. You know, th this is the year that Juan Thornhill needs to step up and have a great, a great season, not only for this season, but, you know, for the rest of the franchise. As, as long as he's tenured here, uh, we need somebody back there that can, that can give us what Matthew gives us, or at least part of it. I don't know if you'll ever get safety that can give you as much as Matthew does, but um, when him coming back kind of solves the whole, will Matthew get an extension? It, it kind of solves all those problems. You know, maybe we don't need to give him one or we don't need to give him one that's so substantially long that, you know, it, it jeopardizes our future cap. Um, and the last player I have was Lucas Niang. And, you know, he was drafted as an adventure he was drafted as an eventual replacement for Fisher or Schwartz, whichever one kind of went down first. And their departures, I mean, as inconvenient as they were, it, it doesn't help. Uh, I mean, it doesn't help our situation as far as needing tackles. We, we need, we desperately need elite level tackle play or, or at least above average tackle play. And, and that's where he was drafted to do. He was a third round draft pick. A lot of people before his injury had him going in the first or second round, kind of sort of the same thing as Trey Smith, although the injuries are different. You know, people were touting him as one of the best tackles, not the best tackle, but, you know, a, a really good tackle coming out. Um, and he needs to step up and do that. He had a whole offseason with, with his offensive line guru that they said they practiced every day, which, you know, I don't, I don't know if I believe all that, especially with that that video coming out, put however much stock you want into that. Um, that video but, was major cringe. I don't, I don't care. What <laughs> said. I mean, we can start with him looking like he's a hobo with the dreads and the beard and then him like wearing like a hoodie and shorts. But then I'm trying to think of the offensive line skill. I mean, maybe hand fighting where you have to catch a tennis ball and then that left tackle drawback Look, I'm nowhere near a film guy. I'm not going to pretend to be that. But his legs look like he they're a mile apart. Like, I feel like I could walk over and push him over. His legs were so far apart and so unathletically positioned. Oh, yeah. And I don't know. A, a lot of people put so much stock into that. Um, we know a couple guys that are super into Twitter, and, and they read that, oh, we don't need a left tackle anymore. Uh, Lucas Niang is going to come in and play left tackle. We, we're not even going to draft one in the first round this year. We don't need to trade for one. The, it's solved just from one video. And, you know, that's... The Chiefs love that video so much that they traded for Orlando Brown, like, the next day. Yeah. No, well, and I'm not 100% convinced that they weren't the ones that told him to put out that video. Hey, just take, take a five-minute or a three or four-minute clip. Snip it down. We'll get you playing left tackle. We just want to throw the whole rest of the league off before we break the, the NFL with this trade. Um, but, I mean, right now, Rimmers is our starting right tackle. And say what you want about him. I know he played – well, he played awful in the Super Bowl at left tackle. Um, he played okay at right tackle. Uh, but, but not only do we need it for this upcoming season, if he comes in, right, let's, let's say Lucas Niang – Everything that he said is true. Everything that the trainer said is true. He's, he's right where he's supposed to be weight-wise. He had an incredible offseason of training. You know, all they did was work on all these different moves and, and techniques. And he comes in. Think about our starting line for the next four years, right? Assume we uh, sign Brown to a big long-term extension. We have Orlando Brown, Joe Thune, Creed Humphrey, which I was very high on. I think he should have been a first-round draft pick. Uh, probably the best center in the draft, as far as I'm concerned. You know, edging out Landon Dickerson just because of his injury history. Uh, Trey Smith and then Lucas Niang. That group of linemen, all very, very good for the next four years. That, that should scare 
the NFL more than a Julio Jones trade to the Titans. That's all I'm going to say. Well, yeah, and I mean, I think that's definitely the, the line that the Chiefs want to be out there week one. And I think one thing that we can hopefully relax ourselves a little bit about right tackle is offensive line is kind of like um, Seth Kaiser has this analogy, and I really like it. He says, you must be this tall to ride this ride. You know, if you go to World of Fun or Disney World, they have that sign, and you need to be so tall to get on a ride. But whenever the talent on the line is higher, it allows players who maybe not meet that threshold to be able to get on the ride, if that makes sense. It lowers that threshold. If Joe Tooney and Creed Humphrey and, you know, um, Trey Smith and Orlando Brown, if they're playing well, it allows the right tackle to be the weak link. Every offensive line has a weak link. Even great offensive lines do. But mediocre players can be elevated by good play, right? I mean, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. You see it all the time in defenses and other schemes as well. So, but we also just use the word if like five times. And too many That's, ifs is yeah. never a good thing, you know? So I agree with you that, you know, I think that that's a really good opinion. Having Nyang as the guy that you put a lot of stock in. The only reason why I thought about going Creed Humphrey or Nyang, but the only reason why I didn't is because they have answers. Like if Humphrey comes out and isn't good or gets injured, they've got Blythe to step in there. And same with Nyang, with Rimmers. And then, you know, I still secretly somewhere deep in my heart, keep hoping that Mitchell Schwartz will come back. Um, though I, I don't think that it's going to be like a week one type of thing, but I could see him being added and somehow ending up starting before the season was over. Um, but, you know, that's that's a big hope. Um, and certainly you don't want to be counting on that. Oh, no. And, but th my biggest deal is that Mike Rimmer's, you know, tackle play is the premier position on the offensive line. There's a reason you go out and you spend draft assets and another huge lengthy contract on a left tackle. And, and that's because tackle play is where you need the most. You can have a bad guard. If, if, if you have a bad left guard, you put your center on them. That helps out a little bit. You know, t tackles, it's a little bit different. You have to have a tight end that can help chip or, or, just put one arm on the out, you know, push him just a little bit back inside. That way he's not beating him to the, to the outside. Um, and, and Mike Rimmers, I'm not a hundred percent sold on him not being uh, even decent this upcoming season. Yeah. And we'll move on from the Chiefs offensive line after this, but let me ask you this. You, you brought up the left guard thing. Completely agree. If you have the ability which would you rather? And I know that I think there was a space that they thought they were going to be able to do both. Would you rather the Chiefs sign Trent Williams or Joe Tooney? Like, which, if either or, which would you rather have? Well, with the contracts they were both given or yeah. like, yeah, uh, Joe Tooney. And that's only because of Trent Williams' age. It's, it's to me, us sticking San Francisco with that big left tackle contract. Trent Williams is the best. Don't get me wrong. He's the best tackle in the NFL right now. I don't think he's going to be the best next left tackle two years from now, three years from now. I don't, I don't think that six-year deal is going to look great in three years. Yeah, and I, I think that's fair. Really, I mean – if somehow I could go in and talk to Orlando Brown and get him to play right tackle, man, I would have loved to have Trent Williams on that deal and Orlando Brown playing right tackle for the Chiefs because then you feel really good about the interior because, you know, there is plenty of guards the Chiefs could have drafted in addition to Trey Smith. Um, but, you know, I don't think that Brown was ever going to do that. I think that he wanted to play left tackle. No. Clear from, from what he said, but oh, well. Enough offensive line talk. All right, let's get into something a little bit more fun. It's starting to get fantasy football season. We're going to try to talk a little fantasy uh, where we will not become a fantasy podcast, but just talk a little bit about it, especially because, honestly, well, that's what fantasy football is all about, baby, is just talking to 
talking to your friends about fantasy teams, the players you have, the players, the, the, the heartbreak, the great victories, all that. So real quick, um, Christian, just talk a little bit about how long you've been playing fantasy and some of the resources that you use to play fantasy, not necessarily where you play it at, because we all know, like, you know, there's like three places you can play, but what do you use to be successful in fantasy? So I was kind of a trial by fire uh, fantasy. That's what, that's how I learned. Right. So the first time I played fantasy football, I think I was a freshman in high school and my buddies were all getting together and they said, Hey, Christian, do you want to, play some fantasy football was yeah sure you know whatever and and I drafted Peyton Manning as my it's the first overall pick you know just awful draft strategy um and I lost and I had to do you know I, I can't remember exactly what I had to do but it was awful let me tell you and <clears throat> so I have progressively through my same friend group learned the ins and outs of it and and not only that but I play in four or five leagues a year so I I really put a lot of time and effort into my fantasy football strategy uh and as far as resources go I just kind of do not an exaggeration get the average draft position and I go through all of it man so what about you so um I didn't I guess I kind of came to fantasy a little bit late I didn't start playing until college more than anything, I just struggled to have a group of friends that were that into football that wanted to do it. Whenever I started doing it, though, I absolutely fell in love with it. I mean, we were obsessed. You know, you know, anytime you're sitting around watching like the Jets versus the Dolphins in Week 17, like there's something going on. But you know, you had your players in there. Um, I and I'm a big proponent of this, and this kind of gets into our next thing. With your resources for fantasy football, there is so much noise out there. There are so many people talking about fantasy. There are so many people who are working with fantasy. But you got to kind of just pick your sites that you're going to follow and stick with them. What I mean by that oh, is, I... what I mean by that is like when it comes to whether you're going to use ESPN, Yahoo, um, PFF, or if you've got some other resource that you want to follow, I really recommend just picking one and sticking with it. Here's the reason why. If you start listening to different podcasts, different people, following different things, you can get a lot of really conflicting voices in your head. And before you know it, you don't even know what's right. I mean, it really comes down to you are trying to mitigate risk as much as possible. You want to produce the best chance you can at scoring. So I really recommend picking one site and sticking with it, whether it be PFF, ESPN, or whatever, go all in on that site, listen to what they say, take the recommendations, but stick with one. I completely agree with you. Sticking to one resource is always good advice. Um, you really just want to use common sense is my biggest thing, right? So if people tell you that Aaron Rodgers should be drafted high, he's one of your best quarterback options this year because of blah, 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 you know, Use your own common sense. We don't even know if he's playing this year. Same thing with Devontae Adams, you know, coming in. People are saying he's going to be the same receiver he was last year, no matter who is throwing to him. You can know that that's hogwash. Just just use your own knowledge of the game and, and make your own decisions. But be sure to be open to, you know, your one source's opinions every once in a while. Yeah, I agree that, uh, like I said, sticking to one thing is really, really good. And also, like, don't let that Sunday morning doubt start creeping in. I mean, obviously, you need to check the lineups on Sunday, make sure you guys are active, injuries, yada, yada, yada. But it is so easy to get on Twitter and see someone that has, you know, fantasy in their Twitter profile name. Say, like, oh, I've got a really good feeling about this guy this week. It's going to go off. It's going to be huge. Start your studs. Um, I'll, I'll say that... I am very bland when it comes to fantasy. Um, I think ESPN, Matthew Berry, Field Yates, those guys do a really good job. They've been doing it forever. One of Matthew Berry's best lines when it comes to fantasy is start your studs. Like what you're trying to do is mitigate variance as much as possible. You know, Sammy Watkins was a great example of this for the Chiefs. 
he would be a miserable player to own in fantasy because there'd be two weeks a year where he went off for 140 and two touches. But you're never going to know when that is. That's not valuable to you. What's more valuable is a player um, like Jarvis Landry, who's going to get you seven catches with 80 yards and maybe a touchdown almost every week. Super valuable because you can count on it. When you go down your lineup and you see that, you know that you can count on that player to produce that. Um, so definitely pick with one thing, stick with it, try to mitigate risk. And then this just goes without saying, especially for most, if you, it, it really just kind of depends on the level that you play with. Um, I have one league that I play in that are really good fantasy players and it's a super challenging league and people play the game the way it should be played. Almost the rest of my leagues I play in, people take quarterbacks way too high, wait on quarterback, always, always, always wait on quarterback. One, it's one of the easiest positions to, um, to fill week to week if you need to. I mean, I've had seasons that I've won my league before where I never really had an established start a quarterback every week type of guy. So do wait on those quarterbacks. Christian, do you got any uh, draft strategy? So there are three basic tenets that, that I believe that every fantasy football player should stick to. Like you said, number one, don't draft a quarterback early. That's, that's one of the most common mistakes that fantasy players play. I've seen Patrick Mahomes take it in the first round. The, the first round. And Patrick Mahomes is the best fantasy quarterback in, in the league. But he's not worth a first-round draft pick. The same thing happened with Mark Jackson a few years ago. And it's probably going to be the same way this year. You know, <clears throat> the second one, I would say, is, like you said, start your studs. It's stolen straight from Matthew Barry. That is, you don't want, basically, your risk to reward is, is much higher or much lower, I mean, with, with your studs. You know they're going to produce. Christian McCaffrey, obviously the first overall draft pick this year. Do not bench him for anything. Dude. I don't care if you read something that said Josh Jacobs is going to go off for 500 yards against the Chiefs defense. It's not going to happen. Or if it does, you know what? You, you take that. That's one of the things that you just, you know, let go. And, and third is running backs are key. They, they are Few and far between as far as good ones go, especially once you get into the later rounds, you know, there, there are very few running backs that that really produce at a scale that you would like. I mean, wide receivers, there are guys like Brandon Ayuk, Jalen Reagan, Rager, I'm sorry for the for the Eagles. They're, they're guys that are high upside. You can get them late in the game. You don't need that you don't need them over a quality starting running back. Yeah. And um, I think, I think, you know, that positional value, obviously super key. And clearly, you know, if you're looking for serious fantasy advice, this isn't the place for you to listen to, but if you're just getting into it or just kind of want to touch basis on some of the basics as we head into draft season, don't draft until at least the third preseason game is over. A couple of years ago, Julian Edelman tore his ACL in a preseason game. A lot of people had drafted him as almost a top 20 wide receiver. And then they were just sitting with him for the, you know, that was just a wasted draft pick for them. So make sure you're doing that. Last thing we'll get on with fantasy before we get out of here is one player that you're high on, one player that you're low on. Um, I feel like a lot of times every year, you know, it was this way with Kareem Hunt, Josh Jacobs a couple of years ago. Um, Last year, it kind of ended up – a lot of people thought it was going to be Clyde, but it ended up being um, James Robertson um, out of Jacksonville. But a rookie running back that really pops off, get a lot of opportunity and a good offense. For me, I'm super high on Javante Williams. He was drafted out of North Carolina. He's a Broncos running back. That's a good offense. A lot of There's a lot of weapons out there. A lot of people will look at Javante Williams in the draft – and say, oh, I know Melvin Gordon is there. I know Melvin Gordon's name. He's been a good running back. That's a committee. I'm going to be out of it. But Melvin Gordon, while he is still there, he is not a particularly good in most instances. And I think Javante Williams has a lot of those peripherals that some of those other running backs that I mentioned had. A lot of broken tackles, very agile pass catcher. 
I could see him really popping off in the next year, um, especially, you know, those rookie running backs, they catch teams off guard a little bit. They tend to have, you know, two or three big games that really kind of, you know, Jonathan Taylor was that way too, where he kind of got slowly worked into the role. And by the end of the year, he was one of the top fantasy running backs. So Javante Williams, really high on him. And this is actually a group of players I'm super low on, but um, I am just out on pretty much all of the pass catchers in uh, Pittsburgh. Uh, Juju, Deontay Johnson, Chase Claypool. First off, um, Ben Roethlisberger. That's my reason. The other reason is, is the team has boasted and talked about how hyped up they are to have Najee Harris run the ball 30 times a game. And that's not hyperbole. Like literally they said 30 times a game. That, so those players, Claypool, Juju, Deontay Johnson, first off, three good pass catchers. You don't know who's going to have the big game. So the, again, that's increased risk. Next, old washed up quarterback who's not pushing the ball downfield, Ben Roethlisberger. Lastly, you're losing more opportunity with them trying to run the ball more. So those are all guys that I think are going to go higher than they probably should. What about you, Christian? So I've got a few guys that I'm high on and a, and a few guys that I'm low on. The, the two that I have that, are, that I'm really high on are David Montgomery, running back for the Bears, uh, and Cortland Sutton, who's wide receiver for the Broncos. Um, David Montgomery, I mean, running back, he's, that's the premium position in fantasy football, and the Bears drafted – Tevin Jenkins, an amazing run-blocking left tackle. Um, and they got a new quarterback, Justin Fields. So Montgomery will probably come in, give you running back one. Dude, where's your, two. Where are your Bears gear at? You were, you were the <laughs> little Bears boy this year. They, you're, I, you're all in. I, it's, okay, it's okay. I thought they had a good draft. So I, I, <laughs> I'm ready for them to be good. I don't care. They're I, an NFC team. I hated the Bears for a long time. Absolutely hated them. Uh, somebody that I know that I didn't like in high school liked them. So I'm like, you know what, dude, screw them. I'm going to root against them every year. And they've been nothing but bad. Then I saw Justin Fields, and I'm like, hey, the Bears maybe. I, I really like the Bears now. I don't know what the deal is. But, <laughs> yeah, David Montgomery, great running back in fantasy. Pick him up. He, he's like a late third, early fourth round pick as far as my mocks have gone so far. Um, and he's going to come in and give you RB1, RB2 production. And, and Cortland Sutton, he's exactly what you look for in a fantasy football player. Uh, he's a late uh, fourth, early fifth round pick. He's coming back off an injury that took him out early in the season. So he's had a full season, basically a full season and an off season to recover. Um, and he just got an upgrade at quarterback. I, I do not like Drew Locke. And they just got, his name is escaping me right now. I can't remember his name. You helped me out here. Bridgewater. The Panthers. Yeah, Teddy yeah. Bridgewater. Yeah. Uh, who's a solid NFL starter. He, he's not going to win you very many games. He's not going to lose you very many games. Um, and everybody well, seems I mean, to be down on him. Two wide receivers had good seasons with Teddy Bridgewater as their quarterback with Curtis Samuel and DJ Moore last year. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Great point. And, and he's coming into a Broncos offense that desperately needs – at least adequate quarterback play for them to do well. Drew Locke will throw as many interceptions as he can in a game, uh, but he dances on the sidelines, so that's cool. They might keep him around for for uh, in between quarter hype. I know, maybe the there might not be a better case study in calling a player too soon than the Drew Locke hype after 2019 with the six games and him looking pretty good. So many I. I mean, people were retweeting it the other day. ESPN at the beginning of last year did a like a top 30 list of like players. Like if they were basically going to do a fantasy draft that you do in Madden. And Drew Locke was like the 20th player taken in that last year. And like, it's, it's just crazy it's how recency bias creeps into things like that and how much people thought that that was seriously like going to be a real thing was Drew Locke. Um, but, yeah, man, we'll, we'll talk fantasy occasionally. Um, well, here, I, I still want to get into my the players. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I stepped all over you. Go for it. Oh, you're good, man. Uh, DK Metcalf and Saquon Barkley are my two players that I'm low on. With DK, I kind of feel like Chicken Little, the sky is falling. 
I mean, I've gone in on Twitter battle after Twitter battle, explaining how DK doesn't run, run the full route tree and he was getting schemed open and shouldn't be considered a top 10 wide receiver yet. And no one seemed to believe me. I, I have PFF proof of routes run, used it all. There's no logic on Twitter, but uh, go look at his routes. They're, they're not great. He, he is not running the full route tree. And, you know, that works in your first couple seasons, you know. Uh, that doesn't work when the NFL has a whole offseason of game tape to go off of and look at you and say, wow, uh, he runs go routes and in and out routes. So maybe we just don't let that happen and he'll be good. Uh, plus, the Seahawks didn't really get a whole lot better. How many draft picks did they have? Two, I think. You know, they, this is an offensive line heavy draft and they didn't get any offensive linemen or at least any quality ones. Well, they did get, uh, what's his name, from the, from the Raiders and free agency. Oh yes, hard. that's right. But I mean, yeah, I, I think I think Metcalf, appropriately taken, needs to be in that wide receiver two range simply because he is limited as a route runner. Um, though he does get in the end zone pretty well, but he kind of suffers a little bit from like we were talking about also where. Occasionally, there's that two or three Tyler Lockett games, who is one of my favorite players to draft in fantasy because he will just have a 50-point game like once a year where it's like three touches and 220. Like, it, it just happens. Oh, yeah. But, but, yeah I've uh, had him on mul in multiple leagues, and he's incredible. And yeah. Saquon Barkley is my last one. You know, healthy, he's one of the best running backs. He's never healthy. The Giants' offensive line is the worst offensive line in the league. That's it. There you go. Two really good reasons why you shouldn't draft Saquon Barkley. There are a lot of other good players that you can take early in the first round. CMC, Dalvin Cook, Derek Henry, Alvin Kamara. Pick one of those, not not Saquon. Well, I think I think, you know, if you can get Saquon, every player is subject to their value, you know. You know, you get Saquon in the second or the third, you know, you're really it's impossible to say no to that. But also, oh, I yeah. mean, they the Giants clearly put an emphasis on pass catchers this year. Brought in Tony, brought in Kenny Galladay, mm -hmm. um, Kyle Rudolph. They're clearly going towards more of a passing offense, which, you know, can benefit Saquon in some ways. But it doesn't look like the volume is going to be there as much. But uh, all right. Well, I think we're going to call that a podcast for the day. Um, we appreciate you guys listening as always. Uh, have a great day. And uh if you got any ideas or have anything you'd like to recommend, you can always just comment back on Twitter. Uh, you can follow me at Price A. Carter. And you can follow me, C. Breezy underscore edits on Twitter. Uh, we both have Chiefs-related content and little snippets of, of the podcast in case you miss one one week. So definitely follow both of us.